welcome to Dietitian Cafe, where we will be discussing the world of nutrition and dietetics, from studying to academia, clinical to industry, and the NHS to freelancing. Today we have with us Bahi van der Boer. Bahi is a registered paediatric dietitian with extensive experience within the areas of nephrology, surgery, and gastroenterology, inborn areas of metabolism and ketogenic diets. Until recently, she's worked at Great Ormond Street Hospital for over 10 years, providing support to children and families living with chronic kidney disease, gastro-related problems and epilepsy. She has also been running a private clinic at Gosh, working alongside a consultant paediatrician, and she's now starting a new clinic up at Harley Street. Bahi has also delivered talks at national and international meetings and is a published author of clinical research. Welcome, Bahi. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me here, Harriet, on the show. You're welcome. We're going to get stuck in straight away, and I just want to hear about how you've ended up in dietetics. Ooh, it's a really long story. How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I actually got really interested in dietetics when I failed an exam at school because I wanted to become a doctor. So I had a strong interest in being a medic. My father is a veterinary surgeon, so science and you know medical stuff was always in the house. But then I failed physics and I hated it, <laughs> absolutely hated it. And I was thinking, I had a big long think of what I wanted to do with my life and I had a little bit of time to reflect and I realized I loved working with children and I was always interested in nutrition. I was running a lot at the time as a teenager. I was a bit, you know, a bit vain, worried about my figure. And even at that age, I was always interested in you know, I could tell when something was a fatty diet and it wasn't something that I was interested in. I was more interested about the research and things like that from quite an early age. So then it just naturally, you know, I found out about dietetics and I realized, oh, I could actually do this for a living and become a registered dietitian. So that's when I applied for the University of Otago because that was the only place at the time in New Zealand that you could become a registered dietitian and the rest is history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting you said originally you were interested in medicine. I think that's quite a common theme amongst a lot of dietitians. Um, so you were born in Sri Lanka, Bahi, but you moved to New Zealand when you were around the age of 13. Can you tell us what it was like studying dietetics in New Zealand? It was different when I speak to the students now I we had a component around food service management so we had to learn how to run a service in a say a rest home or a, in case we wanted to start our own restaurant or food service business one day we also had a small business component to it because many dietitians may go on to start their own private practice or work in corporate nutrition and things like that. So it was probably a little bit less clinical in that we didn't have as many clinical placements as students do over here. So it was more a, you know, more rounded experience that you got studying down under. And I wonder if the dietetic training in the UK might follow suit, given that more and more dietitians are working in sectors outside of the NHS, you know, working in industry, working in catering. Um, I think we would all benefit from some skills in business in particular. Do you agree? Absolutely. In fact, I wish there was, you know, marketing and more on business development as part of the course. Definitely. Yeah, especially now that you're running your own freelance business. 
Yes, and also if you work in the NHS, you need to know about how to put forward a business case if you want more dietitians as working as part of your team. So that knowledge will, you know, it, it will help you regardless of whether you're working in a freelance setting or in the NHS. So talk us through your journey from graduate dietitian in New Zealand to the paediatric dietitian that you are today. Well, what I didn't tell you is that I also wanted to work in fashion and I wanted to sell clothes and travel around the world becoming one of those, uh, what do they call, merchandisers. I wanted to travel up to Paris, uh, be part of the shows and, um, you know, work in the fashion area. So I had a job selling clothes, which I absolutely loved. I was more like a stylist at the time. You won't be able to tell that looking at me now, being a mum, that that was what I was doing. In fact, I carried on working in the weekend, even when I got my first, um, you know, job as a dietitian. But um, my first job was actually, I was involved in developing a cookbook for adults following hemodialysis. Uh, It was very, very specific to Pacific Islanders. We have a a reasonably big community of them in New Zealand and I also worked as an adult renal dietitian and those were areas that I really loved. I really enjoyed that when I was doing my placement so I knew that was an area that I was really interested in and I was at the end of my training I was actually going to leave dietetics to pursue my career in the fashion industry but then the manager at the hospital where I did the original research for producing the book, kept coming into this shop and buying clothes off me and saying, come on, Bahi, when are you coming back to, you know, produce the book? And I said, oh, I'm not really sure. And so she said, fine, how about if you work two days a week as a renal dietitian, would you, you know, be open to it then? And I said, well, fine, why not? So, um, yeah, so I produced the book, worked in renal, and then a job came up at Starship Children's Hospital, and I knew, you know, I've always known that I wanted to work with kids, so I applied, and I very, I was very lucky to get the job. And at which point did you end up transitioning from New Zealand over to the UK, which is where you work now? I heard a lot about Vanessa Shaw. Um, I was really inspired about her. I mean, obviously, we've got the textbook written by her. I wanted to work with her. I wanted to, I got a bit of the travel bug. I wanted to go work overseas a little bit. And at that time, you didn't have to sit exams to work in the UK. So I decided, why not? So I packed my bags. Actually, I, I did, I sort of arranged and I came and visited Great Women Street beforehand a year ahead. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really impressive place. I knew, you know, I planned it a year in advance. And then um, I sent her an updated CV every month. She said to me years later, Bahi, did you not think that we do work in the UK (laughs) with all the updated CVs? I said, I just really wanted to work with you. Um, So, yes, so that's how I started working at Great Ormond Street. And you were at Great Ormond Street for over 10 years, is that right? 12 years, exactly. 12 years, it's a long time. So tell us a bit about the sorts of patients that you were seeing at Great Ormond Street and what that work involved. Was it inpatient work? Were you seeing patients in clinics? Can you tell me more? So I've done both inpatients and outpatients. Sometimes it was mostly inpatient work with, say, a one or two weekly outpatient clinics and then more recently it's been more outpatient focused with some inpatients when children were admitted to start the ketogenic diet. So a mixture. Mm. And we'll come on to um, some of your research in the ketogenic diet um, and your app development later in the podcast. 
first of all, I just want to talk to you a bit about your role with developing nutrition guidelines um, whilst you were at Great Ormond Street. Can you tell me more about what that involved? I cheated a little bit, actually. The guidelines were already existed, so they were just refreshed. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I did when I came back after having my first child was I realised we needed to simplify a few things for our patients. So I developed some flowcharts for how to best correct hypoglycemia, but also high ketone levels. And so those became, um, you know, routinely used in patients as part of the clinical guidelines, but also when families are at home managing this at home, because it can be really daunting, especially because we know that the ketone levels could rise or glucose levels could drop. They usually happen in the evenings when we've gone home or the doctor on call may not necessarily be a specialist in ketogenic diets. So I wanted something that could be in place that could be really easy to follow. And so when we were updating our guidelines, that just, um, you know, became an attachment to that. So that was one part of the aspect of clinical guideline. And, and in New Zealand, I did write what we call standards of care for children with faltering growth. I think it was called faltering growth at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you've also been involved in conducting some of this research yourself, haven't you? Um, I know you've been involved in a study looking at vitamin A accumulation in paediatric CKD patients. Can you tell me a bit more about what your findings were? Yeah, so in a nutshell, it was one of the first pieces of work to show that vitamin A levels accumulate as early as CKD stage 2. So that's very mild renal failure. We know that once you reach end-stage renal failure, so once you're having dialysis, we know that levels are going to be quite high just because uh, retinol is quite a large molecule and it doesn't get excreted. Uh, even with dialysis, it, it's quite difficult to excrete. So um, one of the research questions that I had was, can high levels of vitamin A affect high levels of calcium? Because sometimes we had cases where the it, we just couldn't explain why children had very persisting high levels of calcium. And we knew that in adults there was, a, you know, there were some questions raised about could it be related to high levels of vitamin A. So that was the question that I went on to answer. And how did you apply those findings from your study to the patients that you were working with? So I did a literature review, and often when you start or think about doing research there is an element of working a little bit from home putting some time aside you have to be quite passionate about your topic um, so I was uh, put together a literature review and then you start writing a proposal and a proposal is basically a piece of you know it might be um, a few pages to quite a number of pages where you present the idea to um, members where they would be funding your research. So it could be charities, it could be in-house. The BDA certainly offer grants to um, fund research projects. 
or it could be part of something more formal like a master's or a PhD project. But it doesn't always have to be as part of something formal. It could be just a proposal to do, get some funding to do the piece of work. So that would be funding to cover your time. So if you work in the NHS, someone else needs to be able to cover your work whilst you're off doing this piece of work. But also things like if you need tests, equipment or anything else, um, Usually it's testing, uh, so funding to pay for the additional tests that you might need as part of your research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, in terms of the findings then, um, you, you found out that high levels of vitamin A could potentially um, be affecting the calcium levels in these paediatric patients. So what kind of food first advice were you giving to the parents of the CKD patients? So we were saying that you could allow up to two times the RNI for vitamin A, but actually I was recommending or I was um, speculating that they probably don't need any more than the RNI at the very most. But some of the immediate advice that we would give families is avoiding very high vitamin A-rich foods. It's not necessarily the plant sources, It's more like your animal sources, so double cream, even things like milk, which we know has phosphate in it anyway. So um, liver, I mean, that's one of your richest sources of vitamin A. So making sure that as part of your dietary assessment, if you can see that there are some food sources that are rich in vitamin A, and I mean, the obvious is, of course, making sure they're not on any supplements that might be contain vitamin A. So there are some renal-specific supplements without vitamin A or in the future with less yeah, vitamin A yeah. in it. And I think you mentioned that your research findings have actually been included in, um, is it the Paediatric Manual of Dietetics? Mm-hmm. Yes, Vanessa Shaw has been very kind to link or reference my paper, which did get published a few years later. And we'll, of course, provide the link to your research in our podcast notes as well, if people are keen to read more. Um, I'm just curious to hear, obviously, um, lots of our listeners might work with adults. What are the leading causes of CKD in paediatric patients? I know you mentioned earlier, quite interestingly, that petting farms have been... um, linked to some of some of the patients that you've been seeing at GOSH, is that right? Mm, so it's very acute renal failure in that scenario. It's called hemolytic uremic syndrome, a bit of a mouthful. It's very rare, so I don't want to panic anybody. Mm-hmm. But the main advice is that if you do take children out to petting farms, things like that, make sure they wash their hands mm. because as a result of bacterial infection, the kidneys can sometimes take a hit. Now, children sometimes recover but sometimes children don't recover and it, they can go on to have um, chronic kidney failure as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And other causes presumably would be things like genetics. Absolutely, well. nephrotic Just... syndrome, hypertension, vasculitis, and there's a series of tubular disorders as well. Great. Okay, well, that's really interesting. Thank you, Bahi. Um, I'd like to ask you, how do you manage to combine your clinical research whilst also working with patients, particularly in a busy NHS setting? So that's why it's so important to make sure that you get funding for your piece of work. Otherwise, you will just get burned out and you'll fall out of love with your project. So you want to make sure that you get some funding to cover your time so that whilst you're off doing your research, there is somebody else able to cover your work. It's very important. 
And, and you, you talked us through the process of applying for a research grant earlier, um, but if there's a dietitian listening to this podcast who's thinking, I work clinically in the NHS, I'd, I'd like to be involved in doing some research, what are the sort of next steps with, with making that um, transition? I'd say one of the first steps is think about doing smaller projects first, like could you do some audits? Um, because you really need to be sure that your research question is a good one. So is there a problem or have you identified a question that is worth answering? And the first way to do that is by just doing like a little survey. You could survey your patients or you could look at some biochemical data if it's to do with blood levels or you could review you know you could do a quality improvement project you could look at for example in ketogenics I was really interested in looking at could um, the use of probiotics or particular strains help manage constipation because many of our children one of the side effects of following a low-carb diet is constipation and I was interested in looking at that question obviously I've now left my post I'm not no longer able to pursue that question but you do need to do a bit of background work like what is the current incidence of constipation in our children and then if your sample size is quite small you could even you know liaise with some of your other centers providing that service and see what how are you managing constipation in your center is it a problem what are you using and then start you know start collecting that data and then as part of that audit process or service evaluation then that could then lead to either a pilot study or a much bigger piece of research if you want to go down that route and when, when we spoke um, prior to recording this podcast, Fahi, you mentioned um, it is important to try and see what support is available, particularly within your, your hospital trust. I think you said most NHS hospitals tend to have a research centre that can assist Absolutely. people with putting together their projects. So at Great Woman Street, uh, a lovely dietitian called Graham O'Connor, I hope I get brownie points with him <laughs> uh, for mentioning him. Um, so he's actually the research lead for the department. Now that's a brand new role. But a lot of the NHS centres now want to be leading in the space of research. So it's really great to encourage dietitians and other allied health professionals in to be able to do research because sometimes it can be quite daunting if you've never done it before. But a good place to start is actually talk to your doctor, talk to the lead consultant um, who's leading that service because chances are they have been involved in loads of publications and it may be, you know, you could plug into one of their research projects. Often we find they come to dietitians last going, oh, we've, you know, we've got the funding, we've got the ethical approval to do this project, but oops, we forgot dietetic time. Do you think you could help us out by, um, you know, um, reviewing the patients and giving us the dietetic data? Well, sure, we'd love to be on board, but where is our, you know, where's the money to do this? Mm. How are we going to fund our time? So, have good networks with your doctors and express an interest if you are if you'd like to be involved in research and how did you fund your own research you mentioned to me you applied to several research grants um but you you said that people should be prepared to be declined a few times that's right it's competitive and it's difficult so i was declined twice i think i applied for the british uh, kidney research 
uh, Foundation. I can't remember the exact name now. Forgive me. I'm sure it's the wrong title now. Um, I applied a couple of places and I was declined. I was really, really sad. Um, And I was quite disheartened. But then I I remembered an in-house grant application with the Goss Charity. They were quite interested in funding quite innovative projects mine was quite a you know quite a new project question at the time so they funded that project and it wasn't that they just gave me money to do it I had to write a um, you know write a proposal it was then reviewed by a team of uh, medics who are in charge of you know promoting and looking after research projects in the hospital and I think I believe out of x number of applicants only 50% were given um, funding so I was one of the I was lucky to be awarded but clearly persistence is key when it comes to absolutely don't give up there's always ways if you're really passionate about your research project and you really want to do it start small if you have to but you know stick to it talk to people there's chances are somebody else might be interested in the question and in which case then you could collaborate together maybe the other person has already done loads of research and has published in which case when you then put together a proposal the people who are going to review your application might be like oh yes that person has published a lot so they clearly know what it is to do a good quality um, research so yes you've got more chances of getting being accepted uh, because it's all down to your methodology so and if you can you know link up with a statistician as well sometimes they keep the first hour free um, <laughs> it might help with your um, application as well good that's very useful advice do you think you've got some more research in the pipeline or you're focusing on your freelance work for now I would love to do more research Obviously, I'm going 100% freelance now, but I would jump at the chance to do some research mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you said earlier you'd be happy to speak to other dietitians who are keen to get involved in research or paediatric research to offer them some advice. Yes, absolutely. Um, and they can find you on social media. You're quite active on Instagram, Bahi, aren't you? Um, yes, I do enjoy social media. It's a lovely way of connecting and networking with other dietitians. My handle is at UK Kids Nutrition. So tell us a bit more about you, the role of a ketogenic diet in paediatric patients with epilepsy. Um, what What's the rationale behind using it and what's the, um, the sort of effectiveness of that intervention in these patients? It's a really lovely area to work in. It has good success rates. So roughly about half of children who go on to try the diet will have at least a 50% reduction in their seizures. At the moment, as per the NICE guidelines, only children who have failed on or tried two anti-epileptic drugs and have failed can be referred to a centre who provide that service. But in the future, I hope it would be offered as first-line treatment. I mean, it is an expensive service, I suppose, but for families who don't want to go down the route of medications, it would be really nice to be able to offer a dietary therapy that could help with their child's seizures. And what are the leading causes of the epilepsy in these paediatric patients? You mentioned hypoxia at birth is one potential Absolutely. cause. Absolutely, and, and of course genetics. And, of, and there are unknown reasons as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And you said that some of your patients were as young as three months old who were on a ketogenic diet. And of course these um, very young babies are, are often either breastfeeding or on infant formula. So how do you 
do a ketogenic diet with a young baby. So at the moment, the the under two-year-olds are offered the diet as part of a research trial. It's a national trial that's running at the moment. With breastfeeding mums, you'd always want to still continue to support the mother to breastfeed, but often it may be that you juggle the diet a little bit. It is still very um, prescribed. It is a prescribed diet, so you may say, well you would have offer some specialist formula, so like infant ketocal, and then the mother would breastfeed. And of course, you would sort of juggle it based on what the ketone levels are. And it's not always, you know, there is a therapeutic range of between two and six millimoles per liter of ketones, but some children don't need to get those really high levels of ketosis. So uh, a baby at levels between two and three might actually have really good seizure control. So in which case they could get away with more breast milk mm. than another baby needing ketones of higher levels to get um, seizure control. You've mentioned several times that the patients have to closely monitor their ketogenic um, levels within the blood. So I'm wondering how is it for families who are managing a child on a ketogenic diet? It sounds like it's, it's quite uh, intensive and Obviously, it is a restrictive diet, so I'm wondering how how do they they find that? It is a restrictive diet, so they it is an MDT approach. So you need a neurologist with expertise in the ketogenic diet to lead the service. Then you have a you know a nurse specialist, and you've got your dietitians. And often the nurse will teach. Well, not all centres are lucky enough to have a clinical nurse specialist, but the nurses often teach the families how to test ketones often we say twice a day it's a little bit like diabetes so finger prick testing so initially when starting they would need to check both glucose and ketones and then after about a couple of weeks when we know that blood glucose levels are quite stable they would just carry on monitoring their ketone levels Mm -hmm. and I actually have a nice lovely video on the web-based ketogenic app for families who need a refresher you know you always find that you come along to a teaching day for two two and a half hours and then it's so overwhelming so now families can go back home and watch a video of our nurse teaching them how to measure their ketone levels and that leads me nicely onto my next question which is about the web-based app that you developed or helped to develop whilst you're at great ormond street hospital um so i'm sure that is very useful for parents who are having to Uh, help their child follow a ketogenic diet how did you go about developing an app it sounds very impressive thank you it was an interesting project again it is I came up with the idea once I came back from maternity leave I used to be one of those really mean dietitians where I'd say to the family if you've got to follow the feeding plan every three hourly you've got to get up at midnight three and six I mean that that was quite mean I mean some children you just don't have a choice they need those feeds every three hourly or or continuously or whatever but I realized that the pressures of being a mother or especially if you're a new mom with a child who has a disability and then also you are adding in this ketogenic diet which sounds lovely but actually it is a difficult diet to follow it does mean the child's got to follow a separate diet to the rest of the family it it is a it is an extra burden to the family 
So I wanted to make things easy. I remember we had these lovely 100-page documents to teach families to diet, and I just thought, this is ridiculous. There must be a nicer way um, of giving, sharing information with our families. And, you know, now where do families go when they want answers? They jump on Dr. Google. So I thought, well, let's be Dr. Google and let's give them the platform that they are using. So I wanted all of our resources, uh, initially I wanted them to be, you know, beautiful, coloured, glossy um, teaching materials, but then I also wanted them to be online so that even if, you know, mother thought oh my goodness I know it's somewhere in the middle of the this hundred page document I don't know where it is now they just have to go onto the web app maybe search or go click on a category and they'll have the answer straight away um so yes so so it was actually I had to apply for funding again to be able to create that project so um yes that's how it went out I mean what an amazing resource to have available to parents um because you know so many parents are busy and short of time and, and on obviously phones and Social media and apps and things are very much the way forward, aren't they? It is. I mean, it's a little bit, um, it's a very, very informative app, so lots and lots of writing. Um, Obviously, there needs to be version two, version three, and so on. Uh, It'll be really exciting to see what comes out of it going forward. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And in terms of the ketogenic diet, when the child transitions to their later years, their teenage years, how do you find that child manages their ketogenic diet when they are given a bit more autonomy um, and what what are the compliance rates like? So the diet is actually only offered for two years, just because of the complications around it. So the side effects, as we mentioned earlier, a little bit of constipation, which is fine. You can manage that um, with alternative ways or by increasing your group one, the vegetables that have much higher fiber uh, with less carbs. You could look at... Um, laxatives and things like that but there's also a small percentage of children are at increased risk of kidney stones pancreatitis but also for whatever reason we know that it does that process of relying on fats as an energy source can somehow interfere with their bones now we know or there's research that has come out to show that maintaining very very good levels of vitamin d so quite high levels uh you know higher so we i know we say in our trust i think it, it needs to be above 70 so they all routinely get 70 vit- micrograms that's correct they all r- routinely need uh, vitamin d supplements but you know the ones who tend to do better might be much higher levels of vitamin d anyway so we and of course you know raised blood cholesterol levels and things like that which we know does normalize once they come off the diet but because of those side effects they do need to go through screening bloods Um, they need to be screened to make sure that the child is appropriate and safe they don't have any fatty acid disorders that may you know be a contraindication of going onto the diet so they would be screened and then once they're accepted taught the diet and be offered a place on the diet for about two years now of course there will be some children where when we try to wean them off the diet they won't do so well they just need to stay on the diet and these children are quite severe they might be wheelchair mount they might have global development delay might have gastrostomy tubes and things like that so compliance is easier from that perspective but if it's an older child 
going on to the diet, then yes, compliance can be difficult. But there are different types of diets. So there's the modified ketogenic diet, which is a little bit like carb counting. So a point system. Is it easy? Does it help compliance? I think it does. It makes it easier to go out rather than a more prescribed diet like the classical ketogenic diet, which is you've got to follow the recipes down to the last gram. So all of the ingredients are weighed and calculated very carefully. The recipes are carefully balanced for calcium, carbohydrates, for carbohydrates, sorry, fats and proteins. So compliance can be difficult. So we we know that at least dropout rate of about 30% after three months of trialing the diet. I mean, that could be various reasons. It could be that, the, you know, sometimes it's because the diet isn't effective and we know it isn't effective for everybody. But compliance will definitely be one of those reasons. Yeah, and um, in terms of the... So in paediatrics, it's generally a two-year diet. It's not really a lifelong diet. Is that the same for adults who are managing epilepsy on a ketogenic diet? Do you know? I think it's quite a similar process. But again, they, from what I understand, the adults don't get as close monitoring like children do. Mm. Um, you know, the children get lots of support. They get seen in clinic every six months, some more frequently. And they can phone us, email us. Um, you know, they get lots of support. It's not quite the same level of support for adults because at the end of the day, an adult can decide, I don't want this treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, whilst we're on the topic of ketogenic diets, um, so stepping away a little bit from the clinical aspect, it's become a very popular um, trend or a low-carbohydrate or ketogenic approach. What are your thoughts on this diet in the general population? Is there a place for it or is it another fad? It's a really good question, and I've been pondering on this for a while myself. I think if you've got a really large amount of weight to lose, sometimes a low, there might be a place for low-carb diets. It obviously needs to be something that you do for a very short period of time because the ketogenic diet is, um, you know, it has side effects, low in fiber, not so great for your gut health, constipation, raised blood cholesterol and things like that. It's not something I do forever. I think it is fatty, absolutely. But it depends on the individual. Would it give them the stepping stone to making lifelong changes to get them on the path to, you know, starting thinking more around the principles of intuitive eating and things like that? Would it be a stepping stone to making getting the goals that they want I don't know and I think it's a difficult question to answer I used to be very um what's the word very opinion opinionate about these things I'm not so sure anymore I think it's down to the individual and as a dietitian your role is to make sure that whatever journey your patient is going to take you are able to support them in the best way possible making sure that if this is the path that they want to go down Make sure that their diet is nutritionally adequate and they are safe and you have very clear outcomes. You know, we agree, we try this for two months. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that two months, we agree to start normalizing the diet and thinking about other things. You're snacking, you're working, your work-life balance, your, you know, all those other things um, that you do as a dietitian. But it's, yeah. So perhaps for some people there is a place for it, but ideally you want them to be working with a qualified nutrition professional to make sure that diet is adequate. Absolutely. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about your freelance work now because um, Bahi very recently went fully freelance, so congratulations for that. Can you tell us a bit more about what your freelance work involves and how you made that do, you know, how you've ended up doing what you're doing now? I always wanted to have a f- private practice. In fact, I didn't mean to stay in clinical work for about 14 years or whatever it is that I've done it. I just kind of forgot somewhere along the way. I just really enjoyed the specialist work I was doing. But I'd always, at Great Ormond Street, I did have practice privileges quite early on, and I did have a um, private practice there for a number of years. But it was always with, you know, some of our sick children. It could be renal children that I was seeing privately. Many of them were from overseas, so they'd come from overseas to get treatment here in the UK. Um, but it was when I had my first child that I, you know, you have a chance to reflect and I kind of remembered my original dreams of having my own private practice and that's when I set up a website and I um, just started offering a service to those who were wanting more support or where there was a gap in the NHS where there were long waiting lists for, say, things like food allergy or very severe fussy eaters with usually children with autism that I work with. I'm also doing a FODMAPS course and would love to start thinking about offering a service for that insurance. Um, and yes, I'm, it's growing. It's still very early stages. Um, it's exciting. And let's mm. looking forward to seeing um, what happens with that. I've also been able to work with brands. I sort of accidentally fell into that. I've just had a few brands approach me and ask me to do some pieces of work with them, including Wagamama and some startups and um, things like that. Nurseries who are interested in adopting a more plant-based approach to their uh, menus and um, been really enjoying that. It's perfect if you are a working mother and need to juggle life, kids and a career. Yeah, and also, a, you know, relaxation time and a social life as well, which is important for that work-life balance, isn't it? Exactly. I say as I work at 10 o'clock in the night. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think we're all guilty of it, especially... Yeah, especially me. Um, so perhaps some of our listeners who are interested in freelance work might be interested to hear um, how do you structure your week and ensure that you have enough work lined up and how do you get your patients? Is it through word of mouth? Have you collaborated with other healthcare professionals? Where do your referrals come from? So early on, I did collaborate with a couple of doctors that I knew well And that's been really great for getting some referrals. Uh, But the biggest source of how people find me is actually through my website. And it's really important to have an online presence. I don't get a lot through social media, but I I think of social media as a really nice window shop. So people just sort of have a peek and see, oh, what's Bahi saying? Um, do I do I like the messages that she's putting out there? And then they often just go onto my website and they can see that I've worked at Great Woman Street and that either resonates with them or it doesn't. Um, and then, yes, people just find me through my website. So it's really important to, I think, as a dietitian, freelance dietitian, to be publishing regular pieces of content that resonates with the people that you want to work with. So that might be long-form types of content, either blog posts or I have a I have a podcast. I'm guilty of not being, you know, very consistent with that. But hopefully, now that I'm doing this full time, I will be. 
Um, but yes, put put the messages out there so that people know what type of services you offer, but also so that people get a chance to get to know you and whether they like the messages that you are putting out there. And do you have any advice to other dietitians or nutritionists listening who might want to work in freelance or, or just in paediatrics in general? Any advice to them? In freelance, you really are on your own. So make sure that you offer a service that you definitely have the expertise to do so. There have been instances where families have asked me for support and I've had to say to them, I'm sorry, I can't support you because that is an area that I don't have the experience in. And it's really important that you are true to yourself, you practice with integrity and refer on to colleagues who have you know, there's specialism in that area because that's not saying that fa- families are going to think, oh, well, you know, by clearly doesn't know what she's doing. No, it's going to say to them, great, she's offering a service in something that she really is the expert is, is the expert in, but when she knows that she, you know, it's not an area that she's either not providing service or not an expert in, pass it on. It increases your credibility. That's what I believe anyway. Definitely. And I think when you're um, beginning out in freelance, it can be tempting just to take any work that comes your way, particularly for financial security. But having spoken to some of the other dietitians on the podcast, key message has been niche down, figure out what your USP is as such. And like you said, recognize when to refer on to others. Absolutely. I had a lot of adult um, adults ask me to support them with their renal um, di- disease. I've just said, I'm really sorry, I am a kiddies dietitian, I've had to pass it on. And I'm very happy to do that because I know then that they are getting, you know, the support that they really need mm. and I can focus on the things that I, I am the expert in. Mm, yeah. So Bahi, tell me what has been your biggest lesson learned since you've been working in the field of dietetics? Be open minded. We, we practiced this question earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say be open minded. Be open minded to grow as a dietitian, as a person, um, reflect, learn from your experiences, be open to the journey of being a dietitian. Don't say no, always say yes. Um, collaborate with your colleagues, keep up with your you know, learning and competency and um, yeah, enjoy the journey. It's exciting. You have a really exciting role of you know, you're making a difference and that's a really um, lovely position to be in. And it's a responsibility as well. So, um, hmm. And something you touched on earlier was um, the, the need to move away from being a perfectionist in terms of your work. Um, I was I hoping you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> I think it's an important message because I think a lot of dietitians really do put pressure on themselves and strive to be this perfectionist. But you said that since you've become a mum yourself, you've had to slightly adjust your approach. Absolutely. Um, you know, my kids don't always get beautiful meals with two portions of vegetables. They're perfectly portioned out protein and carbohydrates. Sometimes it's peanut butter on toast, you know. The <laughs> and they didn't get life, any hey? vegetables that day. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, going back to the example of where a parent might not be able to deliver the three hourly feeds, if it's not necessary, tweak the plan so that it it, it helps the family get better work-life, parent-life balance. So be practical in what you... It's important that they get good results, but sometimes 
okay results where the child is safe, their diet is still nutritionally adequate, is just as good enough. And take into account the family's goals. Your goals for the family may not be the same as the goals of the family. So work with your families. Mm. Um, mm. You know, don't try and push your your goals and opinions on that family if it's not the right thing for them. Mm. So strive to be good enough, but don't sort of reach for perfection as such. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, a really good message. What has been your biggest achievement to date, Bahi, professionally or personally? Keeping my kids alive. They're fed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Um, what's my biggest achievement? I'm really proud now. I was so nervous, but I'm really proud that I was able to step back from my journey so far. I've loved, loved working at Great Ormond Street. It's been a really great journey, but it, I, you know, I'm really proud of myself for being able to say, actually, I'm going to be true to myself. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to go out there, um, have my own practice, and I'm finally doing it. I mean, I've got grey hairs. It's about time, isn't it? So I'm really, I'm really excited about that. And I think from what you said and having met you and the vibes that you give off, I think 2020 is going to be a really great year for your freelance business. And hopefully it also means I'm going to see more of my kids as well. An added bonus, definitely. Yes. So being in the Dietitian Cafe, we have to um, ask you, this is our final question. Bahi, what would be your last ever meal? I'm going to say my something from my mum's cooking. I love her chicken curry and dal. So that would be it because I can't replicate it for the life of me. <laughs> they live in New Zealand. So yes, that would be my last meal. Nothing beats a mother's cooking. Eh? Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Bahi. Thank you. And thank you very much for our listeners for joining us. Our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming soon.